think or somebody maybe too many notes. Too many notes. There maybe. we go. There we go. I don't. From think my it, understanding, it's not. Oh, well, there were yeah production notes. It doesn't feel like it's over directed by any stretch, but no. Yeah. <laughs> what are we doing here, guys? <laughs> I was just waiting for Dalton to get through yawning. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Good Excuse Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course. Unless you're in this marathon, because it could probably all come up at... Why is that? Because we are doing our first ever director's marathon in 12 years O podcast. We've never done this. Uh, and because... So that lane is occupied by another podcast. Well, I mean, all the podcasts, right? I mean, anybody who That's does true. movie podcasts, they always do like a director like spotlight kind of thing because they're slavishly obedient to the doctrine of tourism, and we are not. <laughs> okay. Um, and we're going to do one, though, finally. And we're doing uh, the great David Lynch um, in celebration of the upcoming release of Dune Part 2 from Denis Villeneuve. And so we're looking at David Lynch's 1984 Dune. And then a whole mess of more David Lynch and for the, the rest of March. Lynchy goodness awaiting us. I'm so excited. I'm for that. so excited that the good trash genre cast is gonna cover my films. So he's David. I'm Dustin. <laughs> I'm Arthur. And I'm 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 Dalton. I'm here too, but you know <laughs> We got Lynch out of the I'll, room. Exactly. We got you know, we've got David here, so I'll be quiet. Well, we asked Dave what it meant and he said no. And then <laughs> yeah. we, <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> it was over. He ran off like a goblin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in case you're tuning into the show for the very first time, dear listener, this is an analysis show, not a review show. And that does mean we're going to spoil the film, the book, the movie, and the film. And uh, so we're going to save that, though, for the last part of the show, in case you have not tuned in to Dune 1984 and are waiting, perhaps, to see Dune Part 2 2024. Um, Dune Part 2. Dune Part A very Quebecois of you to do it that way. Uh, so it'll look like this. We'll have a synopsis. We'll have quick... Uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. We'll play a little game called Explain the Syllabus, which usually involves thematic spoilers, but not typically plot spoilers, although occasionally there might be gentle spoilers of that nature as well. And then we play music to let you know all spoiler bets are off, and that's how you know we've gotten down to business. So, with that all in hand, Arthur, do you have a synopsis with which to delight us? Or uh, a I didn't even try, so I just went to IMDb to see what they said. That's oh, fair. Yeah, fair that's enough. Fair. Um, and it says, A Duke's son leads desert warriors against the Galactic Emperor and his father's evil nemesis to free their desert world from the Emperor's rule. So Star and Wars. It sounds like Star Wars it's in that Star synopsis. Wars. Yeah, it does. It does sound a lot like Star Wars. It's 100% Star Wars. Yeah, it is. Or is Star Wars 100% Dune? Yes. Mm. Star Wars is about 30% of 16 other properties, I think. Very yes, true. Very yeah, true. It, it is very much the postmodern hodgepodge, yes. And Dune is Dune. Dune is singular and hard to make into a movie. Yes, it is a big book. It is a doorstop of a book. With an appendices. Dustin likes big books. I cannot he, lie. Shit, he beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've seen the movie before. I don't think either of you have. No, I oh. have not. Um, so I will go. Well, I take it back. I'd seen the first 20 minutes of it probably two or three times. Fair, fair. I think that's where a lot of people fall. Um, I'm going to begin with you, Dalton, because you okay. are the sort of Dune, the Frank Herbert head. Yes. So um, what do you think of Lynch's approach to the material or Dino De Laurentiis' approach to the material. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is Dino De Laurentiis', which is weird because Raffaella, his daughter, is the actual producer on this, but it, it seems like Dino had a pretty strong hand in, in shepherding the project, and I do unfortunately think that, that is, that's the movie we got, is sort of an 80s producer-auteur's idea of like what would make Dune a successful Hollywood blockbuster. Well, they, well, they marketed it as Star Wars for grown-ups, and it's not, unfortunately. No, no it's just kind of dumb and bad. <laughs> uh, and sort of misses the point of Dune entirely, un unfortunately. You what know. is the entire point? of? I've read uh, the book, but tell me, what is the point? God. Uh, without getting into God Emperor of Dune, which I haven't actually read, but I'm you know, kind of homeworked and researched in my, my uh, other appreciation of Dune, because I've only read Dune and Dune Messiah. But uh, in shortest, simplest terms, I would say Dune is a story about ecology and environmentalism uh, that is also about unpacking the way we as a species propagate our own history and lore and, you know, to what end do we do that? And, you know, what are the different motivations for trying to cultivate the narrative that we we as a species are propagating? Culture. Culture. What is the point of culture? What is the end result of it? 
Uh, and can you trust anybody when it comes to creating a culture? I guess that's that's the kind of the hard thing about Dune. It's about a lot of stuff, so it's hard to pin down. Uh, but that's, I guess, if we were like to look at like, if we say, okay, if, if Dune has one main character, it's Paul Atreides. What is Paul's arc? It's becoming the hero of a hero's journey and learning that that's maybe not what you want to be. And in David Lynch's Dune, we don't really get the cautionary tale side of Dune that sort of makes us think longer and deeper about the whole point of a hero's journey and, a, and sort of a, a heroic destiny arc and what those sorts of stories mean um, and sort of the problems inherent in those types of narratives. I think that's a big part of Frank Herbert's Dune, and it's not really part of David Lynch's Dune at all, oh. um, which is to me the greatest failing uh, of any adaptation of Dune. Um, and I guess is most egregious in this one, but you know, I, they're set up for failure. There's no way that you could. And I know it's weird for me, Mr. What's a book. I've never heard of it. I only watch stories, but I know it's weird for me to come on this episode and be like, I love the book Dune, but I do. <laughs> it's, it's very good. Uh, and I, it's, it's frustrating to see, a filmmaker that I do appreciate, you know, I've only seen a couple of his movies, but the ones that I, I like, I like quite a bit. Uh, so it's frustrating to see a very talented storyteller be set up for failure like this to make a tome of a science fiction novel into a less than two and a half hour blockbuster is simply a, a task that nobody could have achieved successfully. So what what is there to like about Dune? I guess what we're left with. And, I, you know, there's some cool shit. It looks incredible. Uh, I think it gets the aesthetic of the world. Mm -hmm. I, I think much like the Denis Villeneuve Dune, I think both productions kind of wisely take the text and accurately interpret this sort of feudalistic, quasi-fascist uh, empire that's you know set up uh, in the in the pages. I, I think they both kind of like figure out the aesthetic without because the the book Dune is not like. Very, it's not purple prose. It's he, Herbert is not like super into like you know very lavish descriptions of stuff. So aesthetically, mm -hmm. like they are kind of left to their own devices to decide what the look of Dune should be. And I think um, it makes sense that the Lynch and Denis uh, Dunes look fairly similar. I think because it's uh, you could maybe even trace that as far back as the Ordowski Dune, which I don't know how much time we'll have to talk about that today. Maybe a little bit. Um, but I, again, I think the aesthetic here is really strong. It's a really specific look. I, I saw it somewhere described as Baroque noir, which I think is, I think that's kind mm -hmm. of a fun, uh, you know, a, a adjective pairing to describe the look of this film. Um, it's full of some crazy dream imagery. Thanks to Lynch. You know, he does get that aspect of his, his interests into the film. Um, and you know, obviously, um, sort of the psychedelic touchstones are a big part of what have interested is a big part of what has interested people in Dune for, you know, the past several decades. For those who think that Dune is about drugs. Which, you know, part of it, I mean, that's not all that it's about, though. It's about oil and, you know, and ecology, as I've, I've already mentioned. But, you know. And drugs. And drugs. The, the spice is a psychoactive chemical, and that's a part of the text and, you know, expanding consciousness and all that. And Herbert's having fun there. And, and Lynch not being really a drug guy, but being like a meditation and dreams guy is like, cool is definitely like kind of into um, taking those ideas from the source material and, and working them into the film. And I think that's pretty good. Um, I like most of the performances. I think, you know, McLaughlin's pretty good. Uh, I, I think he, I don't think he's quite as strong as Timothee. Timothee's got a, a sort of inherent babiness to him just by being, having a, a slighter frame. Yeah. Kyle's too old. a little Yeah. Bit. Even though they're about the same age. Really, I think Kyle's only a few years older than um, uh, Timothy Chalamet was when they made, you know, the 21 Dune. So there's not really that big of a gap. But you're right that he's just got sort of he's got a larger build in general and his his face feels a little firmer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I agree that he feels almost too old for Paul, but he's not bad. Mm -hmm. I think I forget her name, but Francesca Sloan, I think is maybe her last name. But the, the actress playing Lady Jessica, I think, is great. I think Jurgensen or uh, Jurgen from Das Boot. Oh, Jurgen Prochow. Yeah, I think he's fun. I, yeah, I'm pretty much on board with everybody. Love Brad Dorif as Peter. Uh, Peter. Um, yeah, the freaking eyebrows on the mint hat. That's that's a wild <laughs> image. Uh, I don't know. And that's sort of maybe the big problem here is I, if you push me, I can kind of like give you a list of like individual things that work. But I don't know at any one point in the movie does any of these like individual cool things like coalesce into a full like narrative 
<laughs> it's, it's fair. It's pretty thin, uh, unfortunately, which again is frustrating because I think Dune is a very rich and very dense source material, and it really does sort of strip a lot of what makes it work out uh, for my money. Uh, I did also watch the Spice Diver fan edit. This is like their th- it's just even the fan edit redux, I think. It's a three-hour-long edit that Dustin shared with us that uh, incorporates a bunch of TV version material. So, you know, deleted scenes that only ever aired uh, on TV airings of Dune. Those things have been cut back into the film and they've put them through uh, because obviously they're unfinished. They're from unfinished work prints and, you know, aired on, you know, four, three aspect ratio TVs. So they've upscaled it using AI and it looks kind of you can definitely tell which stuff is like from a Blu-ray and what stuff is from like TV prints. But it's a pretty exhaustive like attempt to, you know, make an expanded edition of, of the 84 Dune. And it certainly brings the text a little bit closer in line with the novel, which is nice. It gets rid of the weird non-ending that the theatrical version, uh, you know, favors and, and tries to capture something a little closer to the the very politics-heavy ending of the book. Um, not successful. Still not successful. You know, just takes another 45 minutes of your time uh, and doesn't really, you know. You're not selling me very hard no. on it. Oh, you didn't watch it? I've seen it before, but I'm you just have. thinking that, that you're not making a hard sell on. It is for completionists only. It, you know, if you are really into Dune, I think there is something to get out of it. But if you're just like kind of passively like interested in David Lynch's Dune as an oddity and one of our great auteurs filmographies or, you know, an oddity in the history of blockbuster filmmaking, I don't think you're going to benefit from watching this this lengthy fan edit. Um, but, yeah, if you're if you're like a real Dune completionist, you're into the novels and stuff. Yeah, it's it's an interesting version of the movie to, to take down. Um for my money, though, it is kind of ultimately a a mixed success at best uh, and is more more interesting for um, the the occasional flourishes, I guess, and, and more interesting for, for those things. And, you know, that it actually comes together as a movie. Arthur, uh, I know you haven't read Dune, but you've seen Denisville News Dune, right? Uh, no, you, you hadn't. I thought you got to that one. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So this is the only Dune you've taken in. It, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, what was this like for you? Um, I was coming into it fairly um, even killed. Um, you know, I've, obviously, it has a reputation as a film, as an adaptation, um, and what where it kind of stands in Lynch's filmography. Uh, the opening with uh, the princess and the kind of setup is a little bit much, but I was okay with that. And we get this nice introduction into this world. Uh, and it probably is that kind of 20 minute mark, I guess, where you mentioned um, where it really just kind of, I think, crumbles uh, to your point. I think, yeah, five stars for production design. I think this thing looks gorgeous. Uh, some great costuming, great looks, great sets, uh, just practical sets um, are just such a great thing uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, so I really dig that about it quite a bit. Uh, nothing really. I mean, there's like a wackiness to it, I, I think, uh, that I don't really gel with, you know, I've seen clips of uh, Villeneuve's uh, version, which is a little more tonally straight in that regard. Um, and, and so, you know, Baron Harakin, you know, just kind of floating around Willy Wonka's palace uh, is like a weird <laughs> bit, uh, you know, stuff like that. It's just kind of silly in the, you know, absurd look well, of all Arthur, these characters. He encompasses Duke Leto's doom and he needs everybody to know it. Um, I guess. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it just for as long as it is, absolutely nothing happens, but a lot happens, which is a weird uh, juxtaposition. Sure. Uh, and then it just feels like with all of like the sort of internalized dialogue that takes place, all of the voiceover type stuff taking place, um, it just feels like it's constantly talking at me. Uh, and it's really hard for me to kind of get, and it feels very wooden because of that. Uh, so it's hard for me to get invested. It's hard for me to kind of be pulled into this world. Um, because it just feels like it's keeping me at arm's length uh, or, or further out the entire time. And mm. so it, I think it's a cool world and I think the ideas are cool, but I just, yeah, it, it, it just feels like those weird shields are up. Um, you know, him and Picard uh, <laughs> fighting each other in Minecraft armor is like a cool thing. Um, but that's, you know. It's like you said, there are like there are like moments you could like cherry pick to be like, yeah, that's kind of cool. That's a really neat idea. 
Uh, but the, the 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 hole that comes out of this process is not uh, uh, worth the time. I'm just really feeling like it was a missed opportunity not scheduling with you this week to go see the uh, the reissue of 2021 Dune. Yeah, I hope to see it at some point. Yeah. There's a lot of movies, man. There's a ton. Um, well, Dustin, Arthur clearly doesn't know what a Butlerian Jihad is. Um, I know if you go to your memory palace, you might be able to find something Wait, is it on the handout? It. No, no, no. That's actually only uh, in the uh, syllabus notes that I emailed gotcha. you at the beginning of the semester. Have you seen the handout? The handout? Yeah, the handout. There was a handout. Oh. There was a handout when this was originally put in theaters. Oh, no. I uh, Like a glossary. I thought you were doing a bit about, no. oh, my God, that's so Behold. funny. Wow. Two pages. A two-page handout. Now, was this like for yeah. critics or was this no, like this is for audiences this is wow they get them up to speed on the the spice planet melange oh wow 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 yeah that's, i know the spice planet is not called melange I, it's okay no i think it's i don't need no i think you should commit to the bit of, of confusing the everything lore about and this. the pronunciations yeah i think yeah. that's excellent um, um but the spice you, phalange yeah. <laughs> uh, so I know you read Dune One a long, 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 yeah, long, long in time high ago. school. Yeah, as a, as a wee boy. Um, and I know you don't really have a great love for this film, uh, no. even though you love David Lynch. I do love David Lynch, uh, um, but you you have seen the Denis Villeneuve Dune. I have seen the Villeneuve. Okay, Dune. so yeah. where where are you at? Kind of. Did you have like well, Villeneuve's Dune love? is good. Yeah, let's say that uh, sure. this one isn't okay. And there are a couple things that you want to say though. So as we've already mentioned, production design is it good? Yes, great. And I like the puppets. I I love this the creepy wormy uh, the guild navigator. Guild navigator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. talking slug is cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with vaginal mouth. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> excreting planets or something. It's, yeah, it is it is really wild and very very fun and sort of anticipatory of probably a episode eight of Twin Peaks Return, I think, in many ways. Spoilers. But, uh, spoilers on that whenever, if ever we talk about that at some later point, I'm sure. Um, so I, I like that. I like Toto's score. The score's I, good. You know, uh, especially yeah. when it comes in towards the last third of the movie or so, uh, when they start sounding like Toto, finally. Now, and, Toto, I, I heard you bless the rains down in Africa. What uh, about the rains on Arrakis? Well, eventually there will be, um, yes. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the soaring harmonies delight us all. So, no, I like Toto's uh, choice there. I, li- I like the choices that the actors are making. They uh, sort of have a freedom to bring it into this sort of space opera level of wackiness. And I think that's kind of fun. Um, I've got some thoughts as to why Lynch does that. Dalton and I were talking about on the way here a little bit. And we'll talk about that when we get down to business. So I think that all works. I think, though, um, that production interference is sort of the famous issue with this, you know, it's weird because you talk about it being so long and yet it's not enough. And that's really the problem of the sort of edict lifted down on high from Dino De Laurentiis. The movie cannot be any longer than two hours and 15 minutes, which is probably not enough time to cover the whole book. I mean, Villeneuve took half the book. He took a half hour longer than that to do half the book. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think that is a problem there, but also the screenplay that Lynch wrote and Lynch has to own this part is not great, uh, as you're saying. All this sort of voiceover stuff and whisper talk and, you know, what's going on in my head stuff that we hear from these various characters, like, oh, he might be the one. Kind of, you know, nonsense that you hear throughout. I, I really do think it is... It, it, it's not a great effort at doing what needs to be done there. And so... Um, and, I, and I think Lynch has to own that. And I think when Lynch is able to shine, though, in those dream sequences and a couple of the sort of space transport um, traveling... Uh, sequences. I think that really does excel, and I think it's really great when it's great. It's just there's a long time waiting before it gets great again, and so there's that. Uh, the special effects themselves, even though it has got, you know, we might say it's 1984, but this is within, you know, years of Star Wars having already been produced, and it doesn't look as good as Star Wars, and uh, it just it, it, it looks cheap. It, it it it's man, it's a whole lot of money to not really put any effort into a thing, uh, as far as production house kind of stuff. They built so much shit. You got to give them that. You mm-hmm. know, there's like so much handmade stuff in this. You know, so many props that you simply could not go buy. It yeah, just had to be hand manufactured. Well, the worms look great, as the you worms said. Worms look so good. Yeah, I, I almost prefer the like the three lobed 
design to the Denis Villeneuve design. Yeah, the sort of gaping maw kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I like the, the little pedal mouth mm-hmm. thing. I think that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's um, well, it feels very much like the the sort of mouths of the vampires in Blade Two mm. uh, from Guillermo sure. del Toro. Sure. It's kind of kind of a piece of that same kind of vegetal, but also you know animal kind of monstrosity, and I think that sort of sense of horror really does communicate well. So yeah, kids adventure story. Am I grateful for David Lynch's 1984 Dune? I am because he learned not to make those anymore. He'd been, he'd been a director for hire two films in a row. He'd done a pretty good job and had some success with the elephant man working with Mel Brooks and thought maybe this is a channel he could go into. He does this and decides this is not for me. And then we get blue velvet. So I'm glad that it was a bad time. I hate that he had a bad time, but I'm glad that we got what we got eventually. So, yeah, that's kind of where it falls for me. It's not great. It's not fun to watch. Uh, Sting is weirdly... I love it. I don't know what I think of Sting. I will kill you! <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of what I think of Sting. It's good. Um, but otherwise, yeah, fine, fun, you know, for the most part. Uh, but just a slog of... A screenplay and um, a not very interesting way to tell a pretty epic story. Again, it, I mean, you said it, it's it's wild for a film to feel this long when not much happens, as you both kind of alluded to, which is nuts when you know, we know now in hindsight, you can tell half of this story and make it feel so entertaining that you go, it's already over. Mm-hmm. There's not more of it right now. I'm going to have to wait three years for the rest of this. Like, yeah, you you can make this like as long as you need it to be and like enthralling for the entire run, but it's a tough assignment. Well, Villeneuve is an action director. I mean, that's part of it. You know, the sort of space action adventure kind of director. He's, he's got the, that he's, well, he's got that, he's got that, uh, tool in his belt. He can do it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't shoot sure. him there. Yeah. I, I wouldn't either. I mean, you know, but his film, I mean, enemy and you know, there's definitely, but a, you're right. He got to make Sicario. He got mm-hmm. to yeah. do like sort of a lean, mean action movie before he did an action epic. So he kind of had a chance and then, you know, did blade runner. So got to do sort of a, a big epic sci-fi with two action beats. I, so, you know, he's kind of, yeah, I think you're right. right. I get what you're saying, but he also trusts his audience. I he think. does, but he's, you know, he comes from art house, right? So yeah. I think he, he's willing to assume his audience is going to be grown ups, even when he's making something for teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I think it also helps that he is such a dune head. I think mm. it really is material that benefits from having somebody who is sort of devoted to the material and not having somebody who's, I, I thought Dino was saying June to me, which is hilarious. It's a very funny story that Lynch tells, but like, you know, obviously he reads it and he connects with the material and he likes it. I think for a story like this, it, it's not quite enough. I think you do need somebody who's been a dork about it since they were 14 years old. Yeah, and, probably. And really have like obsessed since they were a child about what this would look like on screen. I think that sort of level of devotion helps yeah. and really bring something out of it. Um, this is actually maybe a good time for us to talk about the next thing that we're going to do, right, Dustin? Well, what is the next thing? Or I think we're going to expand the syllabus. Can you explain what that's about? I will. So this next part of the show is where we uh, take the week's assigned viewing and we try to slot it into a film syllabus. Uh, As Dustin said, this is a marathon where we are talking about some films you probably would talk about in a film studies course. Most weeks, we are trying to build a film syllabus around a film you would not talk about in a film studies course. Uh, But, you know, your syllabus, uh, our syllabuses can be any sort of class, any sort of rubric, could even just be a module within a larger class. But essentially, we're taking the, the week's homework and trying to build out an academic course that brings in other related texts to to uh, uplift the assigned viewing. That's right. You come prepared with the syllabus, my friend. I do. So this would just be a class on Dune. Um, that's right. It is that dense of a text. You can just teach a class on Dune. People have done it. Um, I think this would be a module on the adaptations of Dune uh, within the class on Dune. So I think modules, you know, we do uh, a class on sort of the uh, religious stuff in Dune, sort of, uh, you know, the Bene Gesserit order and then these sort of fusions of existing religions. There's uh, Buddhist Islam and and sort of Zun, Zen Sunnism and sort of the Fremen religion. Uh, there's this thing called the Orange Catholic Bible that we don't get into at all, really, in either adaptation of Dune. So, yeah, each module would maybe break open one of the larger themes within Dune, ecology, religion, politics, uh, economy. Um, but then one module, we would just look at adaptations of Dune. So we would look at uh, the Denis Villeneuve Dunes, 
Uh, we would look at the David Lynch Dune, and we would look at the documentary Jordorowsky's Dune. Um, a lot of those um, really cool images from Jordorowsky's Dune, not a lot, some of those cool images from um, the production artwork, you know, the, of the aborted uh, Alejandro Jordorowsky Dune kind of makes it into this. Uh, De Laurentiis uh, gets... Um, H.R. Uh, Geiger on pretty early um, when he's trying to make the film with, uh, uh, oh my God, Ridley Scott. Because uh, between the the Jodorowsky Dune and the Lynch Dune, there's an almost a Scott Dune that happens uh, that doesn't get quite as far as long as the Jodorowsky Dune. Uh, so again, I think I think the module would just kind of look at the completed and attempted adaptations of this work, sort of see what works about some adaptations, what doesn't about others see what parts of the story some storytellers kind of focus in on. And again, just sort of doing a comparing and contrasting of the different ways you can tackle this story, uh, the different themes you can bring to the forefront, um, and, and really kind of key in on, I think, a successful adaptation of this story makes you question colonial narratives and an unsuccessful adaptation of this story ends up just evoking sort of kind of classic white savior narratives. And I think maybe that's one of the key things we, we hone in on is the question of Paul and how do you adapt this character in this story and make, make something that does what Herbert set out to do, which is to make us question and not something that uh, upholds the status quo. Um, so that's, that's the gist of what the class would be. Again, the, the, the module I'm mostly interested in today, again, is, is doing kind of a compare and contrast of these different adaptations and attempts at adaptation. Very good, very good. Uh, what are you going to do for a syllabus there, Arthur? Uh, I think we'd find ourselves in an auteurs class, an auteurism class, um, and similarly doing, you know, kind of breaking this out into modules. And this module would be about... Uh, the idea of director-actor collaborations, which often follows in those discussions yeah. of tourism, that uh, many auteurs have these sorts of uh, recurring collaborations or stables of actors that they work with uh, throughout their filmography and careers. And so uh, that's what we take a look at. And, and we kind of kick a start with a little bit of John Ford and John Wayne, uh, go back stagecoach and maybe searchers, and you know, just kind of pulling stuff from there. Uh, we talk about Hitchcock uh, and look at uh, his collaborations with Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant, Grace Kelly, uh, the, all the Hitchcock lawns. I mean, and, mm -hmm. and there are others. I mean, he's got, yeah, countless uh, actors and actresses that he's collabing with. Uh, and I mean, we could do, uh, you know, um, um, uh, Akira Kozawa and uh, Mifune, oh, Mifune, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as well uh, to get international there. Uh, and then we'd come into Lynch. Uh, and so uh, from here, we're going to probably talk about Kyle McLaughlin, um, who he begins to work with several times. He works here with Dune. Uh, they're going to uh, team back up to do uh, Blue Velvet and then obviously Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return. Um, but Lynch has this whole stable of, of people he works with over and over again. Uh, Laura Dern uh, is going to show up in Blue Velvet and then she's going to show up a few more times. Wild at Heart, uh, Twin Peaks The Return. I believe she comes in uh, Inland Empire. She's mm -hmm. there. Uh, but also uh, people like Jack Nance and Everett McGill, who are kind of these background players uh, throughout these different movies and series. Uh, and even somebody like Brad Dourif, who shows up uh, here and then he'll show up at Blue Velvet again as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so we talk about that, uh, and then we'd move into probably talking about Scorsese. Uh, we talk about De Niro and Pesci and Leo DiCaprio there, um, this way he, in which he kind of trades De Niro for DiCaprio uh, at a point. Um, we talk about Tony Scott and Denzel, uh, and then their four or five collaborations together. Uh, and, and then we talk about Spike Lee and Denzel uh, and their collaborations uh, together, of which we just covered one. And then you could do Fuqua and Denzel. <laughs> <laughs> you, you could. Yeah. You could. Do Denzel all the time. All, yeah. Always be watching Denzel. Um, after that, uh, we'd probably talk about Nolan uh, and his use of DiCaprio and Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine and uh, <laughs> Anne Hathaway mm. and others. Uh, Tom Hardy, who show up. Kelly Murphy, obviously, to big success this year or last year with Oppenheimer. Uh, we talk about Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan and their sure. pairings and their team-ups. Uh, we talk about uh, Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan, uh, Lady Bird and Little Women. Um, and then we talk about Sofia Coppola and Kirsten Dunst, and then they're kind of worked together. And obviously, I mean, Wes Anderson, we could go down that rabbit hole and any kind of number of, you know, Coppola, uh, Francis Ford, you can go down that Tarantino uh, track. Tarantino Sam Jackson. Yes, Tarantino. I mean, 
uh, the list kind of goes on. Uh, but thinking about these ideas of directors, actors, these collaborations, which kind of inherently begins to, I think, undercut the idea of auteurism uh, in some ways. Uh, but also the way in which we can begin to get into the intertextuality of recasting these same actors into similar or different character roles and how that also uh, affects and impacts the meaning of these films and what's going on thematically with them and how we're reading them and, and uh, uh, coming into them in our experiences with them. And so that's what we'd be doing. Very cool. Very cool. Um, I think what I want to do is because until Villeneuve made it and made it right, um, Dune was considered to be a hey, part no- two's not out yet. Let's not call it. Well, call it done until it's done. Early buzz is good. I'm calling the shot. I think it's going to be all right. I'm feeling pretty confident. Yeah, it's yeah. going. It's going. My make- man don't miss. No, <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't have a bad movie. I, I well, I'm taking it on faith that the French Canadian ones are good, but I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a safe bet. Yeah. Um, but. Dune is considered or was considered to be one of those impossible novels to adapt to the screen. And so I think I would do a course on adaptation. It's it's something I've been kicking around doing anyway. It's just the idea of film adaptation and how you interpret, analyze, and understand how adaptation works. You combine some of the skills from screenwriting. You you apply some of the skills from just sort of literature reading and also filmmaking and and sort of film studies uh, kinds of questions and do a module on the impossible adaptation Uh, because there's a number of movies uh, or books that have been, you know, notoriously difficult to adapt, and uh, many of them have had adaptations uh, produced for them. And so uh, one of the places I would begin, I mean, obviously Frank Herbert's Dune uh, next to David Lynch's and seeing how, again, how it sometimes kind of falls apart. Mm. I also oftentimes think about how bad um, the Warren Beatty great Gatsby is, which is like two hours and 45 minutes, and a movie that or a novel, rather, that is so rip-roaring and fast-paced, how you make a thing like that feel glacial seems to be a sin against nature. And uh, and thinking about, you know, sort of faithfulness in terms of spirit, Mm -hmm. as Andre Bazan talks about in his adaptation theory, uh, which would be an important text to look at. I think also books that are, by their very nature, kind of difficult to adapt, and so On the Road by Jack Kerouac, uh, you know, with the... um, Salas, what is his name? John Salas? I forgot. He was working for Coppola, but he did an adaptation of that particular Kerouac work, the beat poet work, and uh, it was okay. I, I think it came out all right, but sort of trying to figure out how to do that kind of thing, or another sort of beat writer like William S. Burroughs and uh, David Cronenberg's Crack at L- Naked Lunch, which I think is a success, but it's definitely not that book either, and how you might decide to not do the thing that the book does and do something different and make your own sort of artistic um, endeavor out of the project, uh, and that seems to be a a formula for success. Another example of just you know trying to adapt too much too quickly. Uh, looking at the uh, Dark Tower adaptation with Idris Elba, mm-hmm. uh, where that sort of comes apart. And then movies that are still continuing to sort of be bandied about. You know, uh, I'm just thinking about James Joyce in general, who is a difficult modernist writer. And so Finnegan's Rainbow um, that Coppola adapts is an example of an attempt at it, which is not entirely successful. And then there've been a couple of efforts. Uh, put forth to try to adapt Ulysses. And so there'd be a lot of reading in this course, um, the books themselves, and then trying to think about how would you go about storyboarding this idea. We might even watch Jodowoski's Dune, uh, thinking about a way an artist might approach, um, a director might approach the material, and sort of thinking through those kinds of questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of The Fountainhead, so would that get in here as well? No. (laughs) Asked and answered. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... Did you say Finnegan's Rainbow? I think so. Finnegan's Wake? Yeah. That's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, Gravity's <laughs> I think Rainbow. I Gravity's Rainbow, which is another one of those impossible yeah. books. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, Pinchon's kind Taste of famous for like writing things that don't in easily, easily lend themselves to films. I mean, even something like House of Leaves, you know, which seems oh, sure. uh, like media specificity sort of disallows its adaptation. That had to be a miniseries. But I think, well, I think there's maybe a way, but I, I'm, not, I'm not up to the task personally. Uh, well, I'm not up to the task either, but I'm telling you it would have to be a miniseries. Yeah. Right. Because you'd have to have at least like two very experimental episodes that are like outside the main narrative of the house, just because of like the nesting narrative of House of Leaves. Mm-hmm. Cool, the cool one to do though, right? Yeah, like, yeah. just I see why people are tempted to so many of these "quote unquote" impossible to adapt stories because, like, the impossibility is part of mm-hmm. like the challenge. Yeah. Like, ooh, how do I not want to like tell yeah. that? Uh, White noise was one of these, right? Sure, last, which was long heralded yeah. as a unfilmable book and mm-hmm. to middling success. I yeah. think we get the the reversion from Bombac. Well, and then you've got like something if you want to go into the world of comics, you know, Watchmen's this famously yeah. unmakeable yeah. comic book movie, and then 
not only does it be made into a movie, they make a you know miniseries thing mm-hmm. sequel. So, yeah, it's, it's very successful. I mean, Snyder nailed that. You know, how did sure, they ever sure. make a movie of Lolita? <laughs> yeah, and they did. And I mean, that that's a movie that's sort of, or a book that comes up on the list sometimes. Yeah. It's like, you know, you can't make it. And, it's usually a content thing, right? Yeah, I, I, I think it's yeah. more that the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, experimental fiction, experimental film, and thinking about those kind of questions would be fun. Well, this next segment is brought to you by Skittles. That's, that's right. It's time to get down to business. That's right. That business is, as always, analysis. How shall we analyze? We've already sort of done our auteurism here, where we see that the auteur is not free to have his voice. Well, I think that I the told green skittle you know. going... Oh, we're doing a different thing. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to do a Lynch impression again and talk about how he you know, how he got burnt about not having final cut on this one, and like, never again. Well, and, and technically, I didn't have final cut on the Elephant Man, but, you know, Mel Brooks really took care of me. Mm-hmm. That one, that's my worst lynch of the episode. Uh, I think that's kind of an interesting story, though. You know, Brooks, I know you've brought this up on the show before, Dustin Brooks kind of like quietly producing the Elephant Man, mm-hmm. kind of keeping his name off of it and kind of protecting Lynch and making sure he got to make the movie he wanted to make. And then and then this happens. Right. And, you know, it's there's a, a really great like six minute documentary on youtube uh from super eight footage that sean young shot Mm. on the set uh and she talks about it's just you know i I don't know when the voiceover is from it seems fairly recent uh that she's gone back in and put vo over the footage that she filmed in the 80s uh but in in that that you know little mini doc she even there she talks about like lynch by about halfway through just seemed fully defeated uh just you know kind of over the movie in some ways um and you can tell i I think you know the movie we get feels like half a vision uh and you're not always sure which half of whose vision it is yeah too many cooks in the kitchen is the sense and that's not to say that dino de laurentis and the laurentis company cannot put together an adaptation and uh, a film crew i mean they did do songs of the lambs and they were pretty successful there even in broken clocks right twice a day um, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's how production companies work, though, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. the formula works, sometimes it doesn't, and everything comes together well, and sometimes it doesn't. I think it's interesting, though, to think about Lynch in, in this sort of moment of having this sort of identity crisis at uh, the the Laurentis company, I guess. Who's the, is there a actual studio? Is it just Laurentis? Dino, Dino De Laurentis. Yeah, the De Laurentis company. company yeah. uh, and I think Dino's the patriarch, but you yeah. know, his daughter Raphael is the actual per, you know, producer on-set here. producer yeah. here. Uh, but I think he's an EP on the film. But yeah, he, I mean, he has this sort of moment and then he, you know, to your point, Dustin, he is able to kind of go and regroup and becomes the David Lynch, right? And does strikes out on his own and blazes his own path. And uh, I think it's interesting when we have directors at this sort of turning point of especially now like this has been the big thing in the last throughout you know, the 2010s 20, yeah, yeah since the mcu and all these ips right is to go in and snatch out these i wouldn't call them art house but a lot of independent directors maybe some avant-garde leading that way um to come in and you know champion or captain these giant ip ships whether it's uh ryan coogler or colin trevorrow and uh, and some of them, uh, you know, may go the David Lynch path and some of them are going to go nowhere. Uh, and I think it's just interesting because you look back through time and, and some of the names like, you know, John Ford and Alfred Hitchcock, who learned to cut and edit in camera so that they could. They couldn't. Yeah, you know, they had final cut without having final cut. And, mm-hmm. you know, a guy like David Fincher, who goes and makes Alien 3, has uh, a similar experience to fin- uh, to Lynch and then. He becomes, you know, David Fincher um, and and was able to blaze his own trail. And and so it's interesting to see, like, when these paths occur and like what sort of director. I don't know. You know, I don't know what goes into that. Like, you know, what separates a Colin Trevorrow from a a David Fincher from a Denis Villeneuve? Yeah. Right. I mean, mean, yeah, it's 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 interesting to see. And again, it's Lynch and Dune is such an interesting model to see repeated. Right. Because it isn't a success. Uh, critically or commercially, mm-hmm. uh, you know, becomes a cult object and gets, you know, appreciation later in life for those reasons. But yeah, it's, it's interesting to see throughout the 2010, see the, you know, the let's grab our indie director and, and see what they've got, you know, again, 
Taika Waititi. I mean, I, we, yeah. we could just list names. Keys to the Kingdom, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 interesting. Cause and there that's are not a new model. Sync, it's not a new model. I mean, Oliver no. Stone, Martin Scorsese, yeah. all do the same thing. I mean, classic stuff. I turned down Return of the Jedi to do this instead. I yeah. think what what's really interesting though is just is that point of okay, I've I've had this experience. It went terribly. My movie's a flop. And so you either you go down. You know, door number one is I blaze my own trail. I'm Hitchcock. I'm Lynch. I'm mm-hmm. Fincher. I'm whoever. You mm-hmm. know. And then you know, door number two is. I'm Colin Trevorrow and I'm going to get my name taken off of these other movies. and I'm going to lose these opportunities mm-hmm. because this movie flopped or whatever. Yeah. And then again, like the other door entirely is the, they don't sink, they swim and they do really well yeah. at the, the jump to large, you know, I did, mm-hmm. I, well, there's something like the new cooler jumps to Creed, then jumps to black Panther. Then, you know, yeah, it's yeah. so, well, what's interesting with the new is, you know, he makes blade runner 2049 mm-hmm. critically well received. Tanks. Doesn't make money no. at all. Yeah. And they're still like, here, have more money to yeah. do whatever you want. Take even more money for two movies. Yeah, like yeah, they absolutely just take a chance on Villeneuve. Well, and I think it's the you know the one two punch of Enemy and Prisoners. Mm-hmm. You know, both making some money yeah. and being you know well received, and then yeah, Sicario making a bunch of money and being really well received, and then Arrival being really well no. received and making some money. So he like everybody kind of knows cloud. this guy has what it takes. It's just a matter of getting audiences there yeah. with the right property. For well, sure. and, he, and he finds that commercial voice. I mean, that's yeah. the thing he moves from, you know, the, the sort of art house director of mm-hmm. enemy into these roles of something a bit of quite a bit more commercial. And that's, that's the transition that Lynch is sort of unable to make here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, elephant man, um, though a financial success because it's a very tiny budget mm-hmm. and critical success because the material itself is just so, heartbreaking and you know there's just a, a real humanitarian sort of resonance uh in that movie um he that movie's pretty successful but it's it it's not it, it's not a commercial film either hmm. and so it, it really almost takes a dune for him to say you know what that's i'm yeah. not going to be able to do that flavor uh, that's just not that's just not a tool i've got you know and uh, for him to move and then say okay i want to tell these different kinds of stories and i'm going to need smaller budgets more independent kind of financing and a lot more independence as a filmmaker mm-hmm. to, to do what i want to do he becomes the filmmaker of a racer head instead of the filmmaker of elephant man that moves mm-hmm. forward you know yeah. and, and again just sort of finding that voice i simply don't think that hollywood of the 1980s was prepared to make a proper dune film Sure. I don't, the timing was just the, wrong. The timing was wrong. The the technology wasn't quite there, uh, as you can see from the, how, how we visualize the Holtzman shields, which is Arthur said is like kind of a cool image in the film, but also does look like shit. Mm-hmm. You oh, know, yeah. you see that Hand painted. I mean, yeah, yeah. If you're in the theater in '84 and you see that, you're immediately like, "What am I watching?" Yeah. Um, and you know, in 2024, we watch it and we go, oh, "That's kind of a schmaltzy and wholesome like reminder of a simpler time." So, but even like within the text of like an exciting science fiction adventure film doesn't quite work. And I don't know, maybe that's, I know I, I did also watch the Denis Villeneuve 2021 Doom part one and prep for this episode. So I, it's also very fresh on the mind. Um, and it's interesting to see a film that gets to have its cake and eat it too. You know, it does turn Dune into an exciting adventure film. And then still, like, manages to keep, even in only adapting half of the source material, it still manages to keep a lot of the the sort of thematic and ideological mm-hmm. threads that make Dune so interesting to, to, like, think about. So it's, I know it is possible. We know it can be done. And is, what do you think is, like, the ultimate failure of the Lynch Dune? Is it just a lack of, like, cohesion in terms of, like, story and tone? What, what do you think is, because obviously you're a great lover of his work. Where, what do you think is like the ultimate like this is what we can point to that says this is not a total success? I really just get the sense that he gave up. I yeah. mean, I really do. Uh, that the, there are these things that he, that I sort of see uh, a heavy hand of Lynch at work. Those dream sequences, some of the special effects sequences, not you know spaceships moving, which are pretty terrible. But the worm. But the worm. Yeah. Um, and the, again, the sort of folding of space. You know that the, those those moments there where he's he's much more interested in what can I do to create this kind of image and this kind of mood and and using the sonic and the image to create that real trippy kind of sense there, the water droplet scenes and those kind of things, Mm. which are like the sort of dream sequence, very, very short moments that you see in Elephant Man. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where it seems to be most him. And so I I think that really works. I think the idea, the portrayal of the Harkonnens as, um, again, the sort of 
Wizard of Oz kind of villain, mm-hmm. this sort of extreme manic cartoonish kind of villain. As you say, there's a quirkiness there that doesn't feel too far from Twin Peaks, right? Well, yeah, there's a thematic in, in Lynch where he never lets evil look cool. There's there, there, there's always a certain zany, cartoony mm-hmm. madness to it, you know. That that Frank uh, Booth uh, is it Frank Booth yeah. in mm-hmm. Blue Velvet is absolutely terrifying, but he's never somebody you want to be like. You don't want to be like him. Um, the whatever his name is from Quantum Leap, I forget his name. Dean Stockwell, mm-hmm. uh, even the the sort of scarier version yeah. of him. Is he's still like there's something really kind of deranged. Frank Langella in uh, Lost Highway, same kind of thing. And it's only ever cool when. And it's someone who has been influenced, somebody who's already good that's been corrupted. And so you see that in Isabel Rossellini or um, in Laura Palmer, or you see that in, you know, Dale Cooper in the uh, in the return. So you see that occasionally. But those are always, again, the sort of the good gone bad. Mm. Is all, but when we're evil itself is always cartoonish. And he doesn't really subscribe to a dualism that there's a there's a fundamental goodness and attractiveness and a beauty to the good. And evil itself is always kind of repulsive. Mm-hmm. And he really hangs on to that as opposed to uh, Skarsgård's portrayal, which is full of menace, but is also just, man, he's a bad dude. You know what I mean? It's sinister. Sinister. Calculating. Calculating. Yeah. But you can get people like getting behind that, you know, getting behind a Darth Vader, getting behind yeah, a Gus Spring. Yeah. And, and it, that's not the kind of Colonel villains. Kurtz. Yeah. Colonel Kurtz. Good example. Well, that's, I mean, they, that's like visually who they're invoking, right? Mm-hmm. Within the way yeah. they shoot yeah, yeah. Skarsgård. Yeah. And, and you don't see that in a Lynch movie. No. And so I, I, I like that touch. It doesn't, I don't think it works for the material. That, that's Lynch's preoccupation. I, that's what I was about to say is I, I think it fundamentally, because Lynch kind of, you know, you would think as Jungian as Herbert likes to get, mm-hmm. you would think that the Lynch would be there. But I think there is a preoccupation with human psychology in the text of Dune that sort of makes Lynch's kind of biblical bent not really fit. Well, he's you know more I mean? Lacanian than he is Jungian. He's all about trauma. He's all about the wound and the mm. lack. Okay. And and that's sort of the, the different sort of vein of psychoanalysis that Lynch sort of follows down. I, I don't know if he's read Lacan, but he, he does seem to be much more in step with that kind of thought process than the sort of heroic rising up kind of journey. Earthquake. Earthquake. Uh, uh, <laughs> that, that, that occasionally happens, uh, there. And so I, I think that that's one of the differences is because Dune itself, Herbert is very much a Jungian yeah. and, and it, it's, it looking is traumatizing the material a little bit, right? Yeah. I just, you know, as much as like Lynch is a Dune dream space guy, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of are like, well, sure. This seems like a natural fit. And, you know, I, I wonder if that's sort of good and that hard line between good and evil doesn't like really quite fit in Dune very well. Yeah. Because characters are complicated in Dune. Like nobody's one or the other. I guess the Harkonnens are pretty uncomplicatedly evil, mm-hmm. but even they are not, they're not like, you know, comical as they are in this one. They're, they're much more dangerous yeah. uh, on the page. Uh, and in the more recent adaptation, I think. Um, and I guess the, that's kind of the other adaptation thing for me that, is really lacking here is cleanly building the clean world building. It's just exposition dump after exposition dump after exposition dump in the Lynch. And it's really taxing and really tedious. Even if you know the universe, like, you know, the world and you know, the lore, it's still kind of boring. And you're just like, Oh my God. And in the Denis, it's like really exciting and like really well woven into the narrative. Now, again, he's got another, 45 minutes of runtime for one half of the book. So, and De Laurentiis slash Lynch don't seem to trust the audience no, in, at all. In, in near the same way, right? No, and I, and I think that's a big part of it, right? We don't have 30 years of Star Wars expanded universe, you know, seeping into, you know, the culture, culture and becoming part of the minutiae. Yeah, it's, I, I think there's a re, it's reasonable that they trust audiences less in 84, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they really missed the opportunity here for a companion app that you could pull up during the movie. And like, you know, like, you know, scan the screen and get more insight on the different character or creature or location. I think there's something there. I think it's like Cinema 5D, you know? 
companion apps for all your movies. Oh man, what like what? a behind the, like a, a pop up video? You can just like have it right in front of you and just popping up facts. I like the, David Lynch has got some quotes about using your phone, and <laughs> I just turn your attention there. I just love your your interpretation of the worst case scenario of a twenty first century Dune adaptation because <laughs> it could have been so much worse than it yeah. was. Right? Oh, yeah, it could have been just as big a disaster. Um, and I, I think maybe that's like a really important lesson to take from this is. All movies are hard work <laughs> and have something worth looking at in them. Probably even the worst of the worst have something interesting to glean. I find uh, even Kirk Cameron saving Christmas has, you know, something, something, you know, hey, made me more of a Christian than I was the <laughs> two hours prior to watching it. So what can I say? You know, it, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Cinema, <laughs> cinema does, too. Uh, but, I, I, you know, my point being. Dune is David Lynch's Dune. I mean, not Dune mm-hmm. as a you know franchise. The David Lynch Dune is so close to almost really being awesome, mm-hmm. and just like every every step of the way, you're just it's you're hit with another shortcoming, and it, it really does make you just kind of wish for again. Well, I say that it doesn't make me wish for it because as as you said, like we get the career that Lynch ended up going on to have because this is a failure and we get Denis Villeneuve's Dune because this is a failure. So I think it's probably in the long run best that this didn't work out. But but I guess like there is just there's so many almosts with it that you you really get excited every five minutes or so, even as you're kind of being pulled along tediously. Um, I'm with you, though. I think the stuff that works best is when he gets to go off and kind of lynch, lynch out, you know, yeah. dream sequences and folding space and stuff like that. And, and, and again, more of that probably would have helped because, I mean, I think about the mysticism of the source material and it, it's sort of like gestured at, but it, it's, it's never quite there, you know, and, I, and I, you know, Lynch's sort of interest in transcendental meditation in general, this idea of apprehending the idea that it comes in like a flash. Like you have these moments where Paul has a dream and he wakes up and he suddenly kind of knows the thing that's going on. And, but it, it feels like, you know, Andre Bazan talks about a, uh, a faithfulness in terms of style and a faithfulness in terms of spirit mm-hmm. that uh, style would follow the sort of plot beats. And there seems to be this on high kind of direction. You've got to follow the plot bits of the story. You've got to hit all of these sort of moments. And that's why we have these voiceovers that are injected in here. Mm-hmm. And what it ends up happening is it loses all of that spirit. It loses all of that sort of sense of thematics and, and weight to the story. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a movie in which he had the time to sort of talk about this idea of having your consciousness expanded and what that looks like and how one achieves that and what are the results of that and what are some of the consequences of that. That would have been the kind of thing Lynch would have been very much interested in making, but then you would have to sacrifice for two hours and 15 minutes some of those beats. And that's really kind of the the, the fundamental problem of that kind of adaptation. Now, Villeneuve uh, doesn't seem to be all that particularly interested in that either, but he is interested in the politics of it. And so he he picks a thing. Well, and he, you know, obviously having not seen part two yet, but having seen, you know, enough trailers and like behind the scenes and promotional stuff to know kind of like what they're definitely going to cover versus what they allude to in the they're first gonna one. They're going to drink water of life. They're going to drink the water of life and get really high. And yeah, you know, somebody, you know, uh, there's going to, you know, she's going to become a reverend mother and he's going to become the Quitsat Hatterack. And yeah, it's, it is going to like get more into that stuff. Sure. But even in the, the first one, like the way the, the 2021 one, I mean, then Dune part one, uh, the way they address that stuff is like, I don't know. It's, it's more grounded in, in some ways, like mm-hmm. Paul's visions are, you have more of a concrete understanding of what the visions are and how they work, right? right. In Lynch's version, you don't really understand even what this power is. The, the, the more abstract, right? Which yeah. is sort of the, the sort of mystic quest itself is, is a bit more of that, you know, metaphorical, allegorical, yeah. and abstract. And there is, like, less overt mysticism in the pages of Dune because he's trying to, like, sci-fi explain, like, the more mystical stuff, mm-hmm. like, has a scientific rationale behind it, right? Right, and rationality is not the thing that Lynch is as no. interested in. and. Herbert and Villeneuve like kind of play with this too, right? In the idea of like Paul can see the future, but it's possible futures. And like Paul can't really ever know exactly what's going to happen. He just has an impression of Mm -hmm. like events that may come to pass. And so it's kind of introducing this sort of, like you said, like it it makes you ponder about the consequences of this consciousness expansion. Whereas in the, the, the Lynch, it's more about like, well, isn't that kind of trippy? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think that he's happy enough to kind of, kind of sit in that mystery, as you said. 
It's, you're, you're, you're right, though. It's weird that he doesn't go harder in on it as much as he kind of likes that sort of stuff. Do you well, think it's because he's... It's, I think it's interference. I was about to ask you, do you think it's a Dino thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think the, the, the loyalty to style, again, following Bazan's sort of schema there, is from yeah. production company notes. So I want to talk about what, for my mind, is the big failing, and I already alluded to this, is that I do think Lynch's Dune turns the text of of Dune and the story of Paul Atreides into a pretty conventional white savior narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, the Fremen are cast as, you know, honkies uh, in, the du- in, the, in the David Lynch version. Right. Uh, I was talking about this with Alex, a uh, friend of the show, and he, he did bring up the possibility. He's like, well, it's the 80s, so, you know, if they actually had gone with people of color for the Fremen, it could have been worse. It could have somehow been more disastrous, actually. Sure. And that is... Boy, is that a consideration to consider. Uh, so that said, when I bring up the idea of this being a white savior narrative, it, it kind of you may cock your eye at like, well, how, do, how does that factor into the Lynch version with there being such a uh, not diverse cast? Sure. And I guess, well, you kind of have to read belie- between the lines. You have to read between the lines of like the Fremen as... Uh, desert people. As desert people, as, uh, you know, indigenous population... Um, you kind of have to read between the lines there, but it ultimately becomes a story about affirming colonization when we have Paul making it rain on Arrakis, which is not what happens in Dune. <laughs> Would kill the sandworms. Fundamentally does not work within the lore of Dune to make it rain on Arrakis. That's, you know, neither here nor you there. You know, I have that thought that, like, these people aren't acclimated to rain, so, like, this can't be good for their skin. No, no it's it, the whole idea is that, like... Look at me. I'm the cinnamon sins now. Yeah, <laughs> Arthur has become cinnamon sins. I said cinnamon. I think. Yeah, you, you did. did say but it was really funny. Um, <laughs> you are a ginger. It, yeah, the idea is they talk about the old dream. Um, in uh, the new one, they, when he's like, "Well, what's up? The palm trees that you gotta like water ten people's worth of water a day." In old dream, they just kind of allude to it in New Dune. Uh, and they talk about it more in the Lynch Dune that they've got these underground reservoirs so they can maybe someday terraform Arrakis. And that is like that's the idea is like over generations, the Fremen's like long term cultural goal is, you know, beautifying and greenifying Arrakis, which is like a cool and interesting idea that is just gone. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul made it rain. And it just like make it I just find it so frustrating. Yeah. It drives me insane. And I do the Spice Diver fan edit that we talked about, like restores the original ending and you know becomes more about political marriages and and sort of shoring up you know the politics of the the galaxy so that you know paul is sitting at the center of all things but even that version makes that seem like a good thing yeah the whole point is that it's bad paul should not become in charge of jack shit (laughs) that's like the whole thing and it is just frustrating to see uh an adaptation just completely not not get that. I just, I don't know what to do with it. And I well, know when you militarize a spiritual awakening, it's always going to result in empire, which is, you know, that's kind of what Herbert's getting at. Right. Is like the whole thing is like the Bene Gesserit have laid the way for, and that's another thing that this version sort of jettisons is the idea that Paul as a Messiah is a cultural trap. It's not a genuine religious belief. It is something the Bene Gesserit, like through their political machinations, have seeded on Arrakis mm-hmm. for generations. The idea that a noble bird, you know, someone from a voice from the outer world would come and, and you know, set them free. Like it is all just, you know, political theater. Yeah, it is all cultural uh, Machiavellian sort of bullshit to like make a more pliable populace. I just realized when I bumped in, I bumped into it again. You, yeah, you've scooted like twenty feet away from the table. I, yeah, I don't. I just want to see you both of your beautiful faces in my eye line, and it's hard when I'm close to the table. Uh, <laughs> my eyes are slowly the turning blue, on blue. blue within blue, blue within blue. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I know it's boring to have the. This doesn't adapt it the way I like it adapted. Take, but it is. You know, that's part of evaluating an adaptation of something. Well, sometimes. and again, I think you can sort of, you know, pick your lane with an adaptation. I, I think there is a Mystic Dune movie. Sure. That could be made, you sure. know, and that sort of follows that sort of spiritual kind of line there and rejects, you know, uh, some of the stuff in the source material. And I think there's a very Game of Thrones kind of version of it as well. And there is a sci-fi sort of hero's journey, Jungian kind of white messiah kind of version of it as well. It's and, like The Shining, right? I mean... Yeah. What mm. what Kubrick does with it isn't the book. I mean, it's got 
elements and themes, right? But, right. I mean, but he makes a very good movie. Yeah, that is what Hitchcock does. That is, right? that, so that is spiritually times. different than yeah, yeah its predecessor. Source. Yeah, I guess maybe that is the big difference. I would be less uh, miffed at the Dune or the the Lynch Dune being something wholly different from the novel if it was successful on its own merits. Mm-hmm. And it just ultimately is where. So this is kind of in line with that Cooper thing. Where is like. Frank Herbert added all of this. Is he alive, dead when he's this comes so out? He's so like, excited. Okay. He's on set. He writes an early draft of the script. Uh, and then Lynch, you know, but ends up kind of doing his own pass yeah. on it. Um, but yeah, he was like super stoked. Came on. Okay. He, he like hit, you know, Apple scene one at one Apple. Like he yeah. hit the clapboard on the first shooting That's day. Cool. Yeah. So he uh, McLaughlin talks about like him kind of being just in like great spirits and like being really excited to be there and just happy to see them taking his his material so seriously. Yeah. So he was he was on board. He, he hated the making it rain ending too though. Oh, yeah. he, he also was just like no. P.U. Yeah. Unfortunately he, they couldn't make it rain for Dino De Laurentiis. They certainly could not. Well, no, and the De Laurentiis company ends up going bankrupt. Um, so Lynch was uh, making Blue Velvet as an obligation for another two pictures, and did not have to make a third picture uh, for them. Uh, and then the De Laurentiis company does manage to resurrect itself and has its own successes. Have a way of sticking around, yeah, they sure do. Well, and so do weird B picture labels, yes, know? Orion, etc. Yeah, and weird yeah. directors. Yeah. Well, and that's what this marathon will be about. One of our weirdest directors and how he has managed to stay relevant for 50 years. How a director becomes an adjective. Uh, that is <laughs> that is the, the series the we're co- doing. That is the research question, isn't it? It is indeed. Well, that's kind of what we did last year with a series of coincidences. You know, mm-hmm. we, we looked at the Cohen brothers becoming an adjective and sort of what that adjective means. I guess in this marathon, we'll look at how Lynchian became an adjective and not, not what it becoming an adjective means, but how that happened mm-hmm. and, so and what that means. With that, let's go ahead and render a verdict then on David Lynch's Dune. Shelf or trash? What do you say, Arthur? Feed it to the sandworms. <laughs> Very good. What do you say, Dalton? Not for me. No, I'm a Lynch completionist. I think if you're a Lynch fan, you should watch it, but don't buy it. It's not... No. And I guess mine would be same, but redune. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, that's a pass all the way around. Um, we're probably Strong wrong start. about a Strong great, start here, well, David. It's not a start. The start's a racer head. Um, or we can watch The Grandmother or, you know, one of the short six men getting no, sick. He doesn't need you to defend him. Oh, yeah, he doesn't. He's, he's doing just fine. Um, we're probably wrong about a great many things, and Dalton's going to tell you how you can tell us. That's right. If you want to tell us about your plans within plans, if you want to tell <laughs> us about how you're going to make a move for the uh, the throne of the the known universe, uh, send your thoughts, feedback to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Or simply just fold space and show up. That's true. You could also do that. Uh, you <laughs> Arthur be- does not invite no, you. No, you can become the Quitsats Hatterack and see into the race memory of both men and women, and I'm just going to keep saying more insane Dune shit that didn't make it into either movie. Uh, but Larry and Jihad, that's the thing they don't get to talk about in either version. That's just, come on. That's just an insane combination of words. Um, more Dune talk to come in the coming weeks and months from my dumbass. Uh, if you want to find that, you can find me at Dollywood Squares all over the internet. I'll be talking about Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 2 over on Caleb Masters' The Cinematic Schematic. Uh, that'll be available for you to listen to probably right as this is available to you for you to listen to. So go go find the cinematic schematic and go see me talking about Dune with Caleb Masters. And hell, do you like me and Alex Sanchez together? Well, go listen to us talk about Dune Part 2 with Nick Sanford over on Serious Storytime Talk. I'm going to be all over the damn internet talking about Dune this March. Um, so, you know, Dollywood Squares on Instagram if you want to find me talking about this silly, silly world. Um, if you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM. Find out what's in it for you. What's in it for us? Um, would you like us to talk about the Denisville New Dune? Well, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM and uh, find out how much money a month you have to give us to pick a movie for us to talk about on the show. Because that's probably the only way we'll be covering the 2021 Dune anytime this side of the next decade. Um, that's probably it that they need to know about uh, this show and how to get in touch. Uh, oh, uh, if you want to follow the three of us on Letterboxd, uh, he's Dustin Sells, he's Arthur Gordon, I'm Dalton Stewart. Uh, if you put uh, any of those combinations of given names and surnames into Letterboxd, you should find our account. Arthur Stewart. 
No. Dalton yeah. Sells. You're right. I said that weird. <laughs> I basically meant if you say the Arthur Gordon, you'll probably still find Arthur yes. Gordon and so on. You're right, though, that uh, if you put in uh, Gordon Sells, you might find a guy. He's not going to be any one of the three of us. Uh, yeah, that's that's the social media stuff. More important than that, though, is what we're going to talk about next week on week two of our David. Do we have a name for this marathon, Arthur? Yeah, more Dara Retney. Oh, yeah, that's right. More Dara Retney. Enter the Red Room. And next week, we continue moving through the Black Lodge. And we push past the curtain and to get truly David Lynch when we put on our best snakeskin to get wild at heart. Yes. Palm Door winner, Nick Cage. Nice. Man. And to, uh, you know, just. Uh, uh, go ahead and say a little thank you to those patrons because uh, uh, this movie's not streaming anywhere. And so, uh, with that. Oh, 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 oh. Wow. Oh, there you go. my wow. goodness. My very own wow. Blu ray. Collector's oh. Edition from Shout Select. Nice. With a reversible uh, 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 jacket there. Uh, you That's can turn that jacket around to see awesome. the original poster art. Thank well, you, dear listener, and Arthur. Thank you, dear listener, and Arthur, for allowing us to cover David Lynch's Wild at Heart, a film that is not streaming for rent or the anything. The rights are weird. The rights are weird and fucked up, so you've got to get physical media for this one. I am so stoked. I've been putting off watching this for. A smooth 18 months now. Beck and I were doing a, uh, a Nick Cage journey and kind of mm. fell off. So I'm very, very excited for this one. Well, you, Sailor, Lola, and Becca can all get together and uh, and see what happens. Uh, it's going to be a weird, fucked up double date, I'm sure. It's fun. Yeah, no, David Lynch's daughter's named Lula. Oh, is it? Yeah. That's fun. So, well, I'm he... sure he has a totally normal relationship with all the women in his life. We'll uh, talk about that next week. <laughs> you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you.